everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. What happens when you're running really far is that your feet can swell an entire shoe size larger. So blisters and and losing toenails is kind of part of the the game for most or many ultra runners. And then because I was on pavement, typically when people do ultra marathons, they switch from road to trail just because it's easier, the pounding of the pavement. Like when you're running, you're putting two or three times your own body weight on that cement, on that pavement. So I, I mean, there was no trail across. So I didn't really have any other option but to do road. Katie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I am super excited to have you. And in doing research for this podcast, I had to check my sources multiple times because I said, it's not possible that nobody, nobody could have ever, nobody would ever want to do that. Nobody could have done that. And if they did, what is wrong with this person? But I'm looking at you and you look completely normal. And I don't, this is going to be more like an interview to check my facts, to make make sure (laughs) that I'm right. Okay. You down? All right. I'm I'm down. All right. So we're going to start right at the very beginning. Let's get a working definition. You are an endurance athlete. Can you describe what an endurance athlete is? Yeah, so I like all forms of, you know, using my body in in the long distance. So there's endurance, swimming, cycling, running, rowing, and it's kind of, I mean, there's a definition for like what makes something a regular event versus an ultra event. But for me, my passion is just the mind over matter and no matter how far you go you're going to hit those those lows and and so endurance is all about the hour after hour after hour and just really witnessing what our bodies are capable of in any kind of form of athletics all right i'm going to give you an opportunity to sort of like deconstruct and um, break that down a bit further because without context it right now it just sounds 
Well, it's cool. You just put your mind to it and you do it until you know what you actually put your mind to and what you actually did. So we're gonna we're gonna dig into that. I wanna I wanna pick it up at let's say college in your freshman year. You decided that you were gonna cycle three thousand three hundred miles across from Seattle to DC. I don't I don't want to get on a plane and fly from Seattle to DC. Okay. But you said, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to ride my bicycle. That's what I'm going to do. And I know it's not a bicycle. It's a cycle or whatever, but it, you're still cycling. It took you 40 days. Okay. So you're like, you know, you're like, it's, it's like the Bible 40 days and 40 nights. Right. Can you walk me through what a typical day looked like before, during, and after that event for 40 days in a row? So for example, if I wake up and I say, I'm going to ride my bicycle all day. Um, I would have to like, you know, get up, stretch, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Get on the bike at the end of the day, like midway through the day, I'd stop for a ham sandwich, you know, trying to get through. And at the end of the night, I'd be like, don't talk to me. What did it look like for you for 40 of them? Yeah. So I never really thought of it as 40. It was always like one day at a time. But that was a part of a charity ride. So that meant that I was with other cyclists. There were some things in play that meant that like where I was sleeping and where we were staying an extra day or or how many miles we were doing. It was a very simple way of living. So on average, we did 80 miles a day. And the most we did was maybe something in the hundreds. But it the, it usually starts very early. Most of the time, it would be camping, and sometimes it would be like staying at college dorms. But this was during a time where I was still in college, and so I I had that flexibility of being able to take forty to do it. And a lot of the other people on the ride were like teachers, or maybe they were retired. So I I, I yeah, I mean, I know that that is a luxury in itself, just taking 40 days off of anything. So usually it'd be like maybe six, eight hours of riding a day and then snacking every hour or two and uh, setting up camp. So it was very, you know, a very basic way of living, but really running is what got me to cycling. So I was in my senior year of high school And I needed to take a gym class to get my high school diploma. And I avoided every form of athleticism because growing up, I wasn't really a star athlete. I was more or less a bench warmer. So when I was looking at the classes to take, I I wanted to find an easy A. And so by process of elimination, that left me to walking and running. And um, so I was just, you know, I was very... I was like, I want to just figure out any way to get out of taking this class. I wanted to, you know, get petitioned that I wouldn't have to take it. It was just dragging my feet. So I, at the beginning, I was just walking and week by week and seeing other people that were running, I was, that was where the seed was planted. Can I run one mile straight? And there was no pressure from coaches or letting teammates down. And it was a very pure, active curiosity. And it wasn't this magic Nike moment of running that one mile, but one mile was just enough for me to say, 
I never thought I could do that. And I was wrong. So what are all the other things that I'm wrong about? What are all these, you know, um, lies that I'm, I'm telling to myself? And unless you try, that's a huge thing for me. Like people will tell me, oh, I could never run a marathon. I could never run a hundred miles. And my biggest thing is like, well, have you tried? And if the answer is no, no one has ever run a marathon without actually trying. So I'm all about the try and just kind of letting the chips fall and seeing, seeing what's possible with this. And so yes, running, I got, I was like, okay. I, and then I built up to run my first marathon and that is kind of where it switched to, okay, I reached some kind of level in running. Now let's see if, if I could try an endurance cycling event. So yeah, running led me to, to riding. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna get into a few more things. We're gonna be talking about swimming and and rowing and a bunch of other stuff that you've done. But I want to take a beat here for a second, and I want to sort of like take a uh, a check under the hood, and I want to sort of think through this process, right? So for the people that are listening now, perhaps he or she has set a goal to run a ten k, or to run a half a marathon, or to run a marathon. I personally ran a I ran two full marathons. By the end of the second one, I said I'll never do this again. Like it was torture for me, right? There were all kinds of problems. There was like a knee thing and there was a toe thing and there was a back thing and but what I did notice was happening is as I was going through like if I hit like the 6 mile like I would always get this problem on the six mile. Like it was like clockwork. And then I worked through like the six mile thing and then it just disappeared. And then I had a new one, like on the 10th mile. Do you know what I mean? Oh, totally. Yeah. Okay. So when you are doing what you're doing, do you, you mentioned that you take it one day at a time. You don't think of 40 days in a row. You don't think of 3,300 miles. You just think of, I just, just got to do today. When you have... Because you're human. I mean, you are, <laughs> you know, when you get the pain in your toe, when you get the back pain, what do you, like, how do you deal with it? Do you stop? Do you, like, how do you, how do you push through to something at this extreme? Because I'm sure you had a thousand things that happened before the end of anything you've done. Yeah. I mean, the last event that I did was, 11 ultra marathons in 11 days. So it was 31 miles of running every day after day for 11 days straight. And obviously there was a lot of pain involved with that. I definitely feel like, you know, with the crew, this was a conversation we had before the event even started. And it was, when do we pull the plug? When is enough enough? Because traditionally it's like, you know, keep going, keep going. But once you go to this certain level, that's actually very dangerous, harmful. Um, and so we've, you know, before it was in the middle of the event, we've defined when to pull the plug, what is, because it, mm. it, it's, there's this fine line. You'll see it at races too, where people are really in pain and struggling and suffering. And most kind thing you could do is tell them to stop and protect their bodies. So, um, I, I, I do know the difference between like pain that's injury and then pain that's fatigue. And I think 
when you're doing endurance, it's really important to differentiate that. Like if I keep going, will I get more injured and need to take more time off? Or if I keep going, is it just like, yeah, just kind of like heavy legs or what, and defining what is going to cause maybe longer term versus is this immediate discomfort? But yeah, I mean, I think what's also really great about endurance is I don't really enjoy it until you're three, four, five miles in because endorphins and the pain that I feel from doing these events usually happens a day later, like running a hundred miles the day later is when it's harder to walk up and down stairs. And so because the endorphins are masking so much pain, I might not necessarily be as aware of it, but I mean, that is kind of, I don't want to say the draw, but that is part of the drama that I'm allured to with endurance because you know that no matter how hard you train, I mean, I have so much respect for these distances, even though I've done them, I'm never going to say, oh yeah, no matter how many hundred mile runs I do, I'm never going to say, oh yeah, I got it. It's no biggie. Like, yeah, every race you're like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know. Anything could happen. And so I think, you know, the drama in the sense of the highs, the lows, the uncertainties, the the curiosity of, of human potential. And so I don't really think about the pain as much because I'm drawn to the excitement of chasing unknowns. Hey, it's Rob. I wanna jump in and take a quick second to say you gotta get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you wanna work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. How much of what you're doing now would you say is good for your body versus you breaking through the mental barriers? In other words, is the carrot for you breaking through the mental barriers and seeing what's possible? Or is the carrot for you to create a, uh, a superhuman machine? Um, so like the last event I did running an ultra marathon every single day, day after day is probably I mean, I did run faster at the end than the beginning. So there's something to be said about that. But I don't think any doctor would be like, yeah, I recommend you do this. It is absolutely excessive. Um, So what my mindset is, is how can I do something that is potentially dangerous in the safest way possible? So I I do think we are very capable and, and running and doing these things you know, it's kind of like barefoot running. If we started off the bat doing that, then maybe it wouldn't cause injury, but kind of, yeah, just making that shift from one extreme to the other. But I I do, I mean, there, there was even a documentary I watched recently about running being a form of, of like, almost like a weapon of survival. And they were chasing down this antelope and it was um, eight guys and eventually the animal collapsed. And so it, I think there's something to be said about how we were designed to be able to run and last these long distances. But yeah, I mean, there's no reason that you can't maintain health by just 
doing cardio three or four times a week, doing weights three and maybe a little stretching and yoga. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm very aware that the longer you go, the, the more potential dangers, but that's what training is for. Training is for your body to adapt in these more controlled environments so that it won't necessarily have those negative effects of overtraining or, you know, yeah. Injured. Yeah. All right. Let's put you in the water now. You decided that you were going to swim the entire length of the Allegheny River, which is 325 miles uh, from New York to Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, I think the first question, I'm not, I'm not, I want to ask why to every one of these, but I'm not going to do it because I, I don't think I'm going to get an answer that's ever going to be satisfying to me. Why not? Because- why not? Why not? <laughs> I think because oh, is that the answer? Why no, not? Yeah. yeah okay. Not? Yeah. Got it. Because it's there, and why not? I, I I get it. I get it. I I almost. I mean, like, I don't want to get too woo woo on you, but I feel like you were like an like a gazelle or an elk or something in your last life. I mean, there had to be something because this is so unusual. But let's stay with swimming. What okay. were um, some of the tricks or approaches to pull something off like that that you did that work for you to allow you to be uh, successful for a particular event like that. So, you know, I, I, I go in the pool, I swim from one end to the other and I, I'm out of breath. Okay. You, you get in and you go 325 miles. What were some approaches for you to prepare for something like that? Let's start, let, let's do that. Let's make it a two-parter. Yeah. How did you prepare for it? And then what were some approaches you had when you were in the water for 325 miles? Yeah, that was probably the easiest adventure that I've ever planned for because I did have a safety kayaker and we, I mean, all the gear was there and it was very, very much camping on the side of the river and there it's, it wasn't very developed. So you just pull over on the side, you don't have to plan where you're going to stay or, and, you know, I mean, it was just a matter of getting food. And as long as there was food, I mean, yeah. So I wrap my head around distance by, by, I mean, so say I, I asked you, okay, or can you walk eight hours today? And you wouldn't, you wouldn't think, oh, I really need to train. Oh, I really, no. so I think of endurance as finding that easy like sustainable pace. So I find the walking pace of running, the walking pace of cycling. And that's not always, I mean, I do do races, but I mean, if you work with coaches and they'll usually talk about like different zones where your heart rate should be zone one, zone two, up to five. And most of the work that you're doing in endurance is zone two. So it's a very comfortable, you can have a conversation the whole time. So I thought of, all I, I, that is kind of how I think of these activities that if you are exerting too much energy, you're going to pay for it the day after day after day, because it's going to compound. So uh, ultra running is an example where most people walk up hills, walk up climbs, because what you gain by running is not worth what you lose by the effort it takes to run up a hill. So there are different smaller strategies to think about conservation, conservation, conservation. So just it's pacing. It really comes down to that. And a huge part of it is fueling. Like 
your body usually is very good about telling you when you have fueled and haven't. But in my earlier endurance days, I underestimated the amount of calories I would need, which presented itself as just like being really dizzy and sometimes disoriented. So I've I've come a long way from that, but um, I do get most of my calories through liquid because that every time you eat something, you usually need to drink something to digest it. So just getting it all liquid, it's easily absorbable, easily digestible. You don't, your body doesn't have to break down to use those calories. So I have pretty much transitioned from during events going fully liquid to, you know, make it, I mean, it's not, yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's all across the board. I mean, some people will eat pizza while doing endurance things. I know I've, I've seen that. It's that, that is so peculiar. Okay. You decided that you were going to up the ante again and do a solo rowing in the ocean, uh, making you, I believe the only American to have rowed from Africa to South America. And I I think it was 2,817 miles. Did I get that right? Um, that would be straight line. So it was like 3000 with the squiggles, but yes, pretty much. 3000 with the, uh, the squiggles. Okay. So how do you mentally prepare for something like that before you get in the boat? And when you get in the boat, just mental, not physical, just mental. Yeah. I mean, nothing can prepare you for the Atlantic. And I did work with a sports psychologist, um, which was helpful. He's worked with a range of different athletes. And so we kind of went through, you know, what's the worst that can happen? What's the best that can happen? What's the most likely to happen? And even during the row itself, I was giving updates about, and he'd have me like fill out a little survey to see and yeah, just kind of see where my mind went. But I think the most challenging thing was coming out of the row rather than going into the row, just because, I mean, solitary confinement is like, you know, the worst form of punishment. Um, if you're in, yeah. And, and sometimes there's this thing that happens where you go, you're, you're in that solitary confinement and then you're taken out and that was this controlled world. And then you're out of this so many unknowns. And that was a huge transition for me just to go from, for many reasons, like to have an experience that not many people could relate to could often feel isolating. I mean, I do, I do have friends in the ocean rowing world. Aren't many of them. Most of them are in the UK, but I think that's, yeah, I think that is almost the part that is most overlooked as coming off of coming down from, I mean, for so many reasons. And, um, yeah, I mean, I am in a different place now, but I very much attached my worth to these endurance challenges. So in that success, in that moment of high, it was usually met with a low because I reached my goal, but I lost my purpose. And what is my purpose? And, um, I'm very purpose driven. And so, that could be a very disorienting place to be. I mean, I'm sure anyone going from one stage to the next and and really puts their identity into that thing can, can relate. 
Yeah, I want to I want to talk to you about your uh, purpose in a second, but I want to cover another area of that row. And I believe you stepped into the world of meditation, particularly vipassana. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Okay. So I have a friend who did the bike across America. We did that um, together, and uh, he mentioned like man, I did this meditation retreat. He was in Thailand at the time and was like, it was the hardest thing I've ever done and, and just how beneficial it was. And so that was it. That was like the little seed that was planted. And so they there are Vipassana retreats all over the world. And I found one, I was living in Ohio at the time. And I think the closest one was Michigan. So that was huge. I mean, it may seem like, okay, meditation and doing activity, what's, how are those two things related? But it's not the big scary waves. It's not the sore muscles. It's how you respond and react and how you can watch emotions rather than participate and engage in and indulge in them. So I, I did three of those. And so they were these 10 day retreats meditating 12, a 10 to 12 hours a day. There's no reading, there's no writing, there's no talking. It was noble silence. And so that helped me understand what it would be like to kind of be in my own head for that amount of time. And even being on the row, I had podcasts, I had pretty scenery, I had beautiful sunsets. I had things that I didn't even have in that meditation retreat. So I think that was definitely a helpful tool to know what to do in those places in your head when you're alone. Okay. So you're in the water, you've got crazy crashing waves around the Atlantic that you're having to navigate. You're listening to Comedy Central. You've got a background of Vipassana that you can use and you're out there by yourself all day. It's just you. you when you look back on that time, do you look back on that time like, shit, I'm glad that's over. Or do you look back on it and go, I miss it? So I look at it with a lot of gratitude just because I am very aware of, you know, there's there's a lot of extremes. There's one person that will say, I, I would never do that. That would be the worst nightmare. But, but it is definitely a, a, a privilege to be able to experience something like that. Gratitude for making it to the other side and um, having some kind of experience that like that. So early in my life, it was like the youngest to have rode the rode an ocean record as well. And so I think having that early sense of possibility kind of set the stage to, to always go back to, but I, I, I do generally do new things. I don't like doing the same thing over again because I don't I don't even like reading books about other ocean rowers because I want to have my own experience. I don't want to be clouded by this is what this person did, this is what that per-. so now I'm going to have it. And so it's pure. It's very pure to do things you've never done before. If I wanted to row another ocean, I would always be comparing it to what that was and um and so I think not doing another row would be more to preserve and to honor that as its own experience rather than comparing it to something. 
something else. Yeah, so. yeah. Make, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, okay, the last one I want to talk about is uh, I want to touch on running one more time. In uh, in 2020, you became the first woman to run nonstop across the state of New Hampshire in 11 hours. But, but that wasn't enough. You said, okay, I'm going to do Vermont. And you did that one in 13 hours. And then you said, you know what? Uh, let, let, what? Let's just do Maine. And that one was 33 hours. Did you get any injuries at all during any of those? I mean, I, I go out uh, two miles, I get a, I get a shin split. Like what, what kinds of injuries did you get when you do something like that? Yeah. I mean, I'm still like recovering from the last run with my toenails, like toenails don't always hang around. And so I I do have a wider toe box. And so what happens when you're running really far is that your feet can swell an entire shoe size larger. So blisters and and losing toenails is kind of part of the, the game for most or many ultra runners. And then because I was on pavement, Typically, when people do ultra marathons, they switch from road to trail just because it's easier. The pounding of the pavement, like when you're running, you're putting two or three times your own body weight on that cement, on that pavement. So, I, I mean, there was no trail across Maine, so I didn't really have any other option but to do road. So, on about maybe mile 110 is when I just had a lot of swelling. And so I did have some edema in my ankles. And so it was just, yeah, really painful and um, a lot of fluid in in my ankles. But that did clear up within, yeah, maybe a few days. Um, So that would, yeah, I guess that would be the the toenails and, and some edema, which, I mean, you can actually get that from sitting too long, like if you're on yeah. a flight. So it's just kind yeah, of for sure. Kind of, Do you um what's what's next on the horizon for you in in the area of endurance? Um, so I I haven't done any uh, rollerblading or inline skating one. So my friend and I are doing it's it's a smaller thing, but it's um rollerblading from Key Largo to Key West, doing an ultra every day on skates. Um, so that's going to be crossing 44 different islands. And, and I, I'm really excited just to try something new. And then, um, next year, it, it does depend a little bit with work. So my term with the Coast Guard is up. And so I'm looking to, to get back into some of the bigger expeditions. So I am looking at next winter cycling from South to North America. So like 9,000 miles. Yeah. We, we didn't mention that you decided to uh, become a Coast Guard in the midst of all of this. What drew you to becoming a Coast Guard? Um, so of course, like service, of course, the wanting to be part of something bigger. And uh, at one point I was considering doing rescue swimming, uh, especially when I heard that like there weren't many females that have ever been able to do that. And I was training and I reached this level where, you know, to qualify to be considered. And as soon as I reached that, I was like, oh, I just wanted to know I could, which is very much 
what I do all the time in endurance. I just want to know if I can. And then once I realize that, then I usually back off and try something else. Or So that's great to apply towards your hobbies, not so much with your career. So I did look at what other opportunities and apply for officer candidate school. And um, that that is where I am now. So yeah, I mean, there's so many good things to say about the Coast Guard aside from the mission and the people I get to work with, constantly learning new things, never really knowing. I mean, it changes all the time. And aside from COVID, just the things I get to learn and and um, the growth that happens and is promoted and um, supported through through the organization. So. Okay, I want to jump in for 15 seconds and say if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. Yeah, it's great. I've got a, a buddy in Miami that does uh, helicopter over the uh, over the ocean and he's got great stories about uh, about drug smugglers covering the engine because they know that that the coast guard won't shoot them you know there's all kinds of you know and like in in key west where they're like shooting the water cannons back and you know trying not to let them get dry feet it's it's a very in, most people don't understand i think what coast guards do it's fascinating i want to talk to you i want to talk a little bit about your why you have a big passion for water and helping people get clean water, which is, um, you know, we take for granted in, um, in many industrialized countries that, you know, we're going to have water, but that's not the case for a lot of people. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, um, some of the challenges around water and why you chose to be passionate about that as your why. Yeah. I mean, I definitely believe that if you have a strong enough why, you can figure out how. And my why has always been water. Uh, I learned about the water crisis while I was living in Australia and they were experiencing a drought. Every major headline was about the water shortages and this perpetual fear of it running out. And that's where I started thinking differently about water And I was um, in an environmental science class where the professor mentioned the wars of the future will be because of water. And in some countries, it's already the case. And it was just that one sentence that I was just like, what do you mean people are going to war and learning about some of the conflicts in Africa? And the feeling I had when I first learned about the water crisis at the time, it was one in six people not not having access to clean water. And my mind was just blown knowing that we have smartphones and heli- you know, airplanes and have all this technology at our fingertips. And yet one in six people, and I, I would have thought by age 20, I would have recognized the daily struggle of one sixth of the population on our planet. And what gets me so excited about water is that there are so many problems that we have that we don't have solutions for. We don't know how to fix it. And with water, I mean, there is no one size fits all. It, there's wells, there's boreholes, there's rainwater harvesting. There's different ways, not only in different countries, but different car- parts of the country if they have rainy season or not. And so what's really amazing about water is it is the first step out of a life of poverty. And a $1 investment into clean water results in 
12 dollars 9 to $12 back into the economy. So it is this multiplying, this ripple of impact. I want to ask you, uh, as we wrap up, I'm going to ask you some weird questions about yourself. Just roll with it. When you're listening to music, I know you love electronic music. What kind of electronic music do you like to listen to when you're doing endurance events? Um, so I, I'm a Pandora kind of gal. I don't even, I don't make the playlist. So I, I don't even know. You just let, you just let her, you just let her pick it for yeah. you. But, okay. um, yeah, I don't okay. really like a lot of singing. It's more about the beats. And yeah. You know, a, another thing you may want to consider is, uh, techno. Let's go on uh, Pandora and just type in techno because it's very hypnotic. When I feel yeah. like I need an extra boost, I mean, I, yeah. I don't know what the hell I'm, I'm giving you advice for, but if you uh, it, it, try it, I think you'll take it. Let's talk about audiobooks. What kind of audiobooks? Well, maybe I'll refine this question a little bit. Which audiobook was the one that you were most captured by while you were out there in the Atlantic where you were just like into it? I mean, so. I did have to stay pretty focused while I was rowing. And I think most people think like on the, on the speed, calm and quiet, but it was actually really loud with the waves crashing and just, so I definitely was all about the comedy and listening to that over an audiobook because you can catch and like if I didn't time my oar stroke right, I could have bruised my um, knees or broken my ribs. Like, so you have to be very strategic about that. So I definitely gravitated more to comedy and um, I had maybe like 15 hours of it. So I had to be very like, okay, just a little bit to make it, you know, preserve that as something to look forward to. So is there a, uh, a particular comedian that you loved more than anybody? Uh, Jim Gaffin. Yeah. He's great. Yeah, he's really funny. Really, really great. What do people often get wrong about you? Maybe that things aren't hard. Like they're still hard. Yeah. It makes yeah. sense. It makes sense because I don't want to go swimming with you. I'd be like this, you know, like this, forget it. What are some things in your life right now that you're doing that you don't really love? You're you're like I would prefer to be doing less of this. I feel like I'm like stuck in this thing where I almost have to do it, but I don't love it. I wish I could do less of it. Emails all the time. Get me away. Someone else yeah. respond. Yeah. The data, the, dat, the data shows every email you send produces 2.3 more. It's very interesting. <clears throat> it's crazy. You can't get away from it. What is a new behavior or habit that has most improved your life? Uh, faith? Yeah, faith. like, uh, yeah, having faith. Do you mean like a religious faith or do you mean yeah. faith in yourself? Yeah, a religious faith. Like that is kind of what the foundation on where I stand. And so I can't imagine, you know, what my life would look a lot different if I didn't have that. And because mm -hmm. I didn't have faith, uh, you know, within five years, I'd say. Got it. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Well, I'd have to figure out some like really, you know, dumb challenge to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you start with that. Somewhere. Where I could go for a month? 
You can come to Italy and eat pasta until you explode. I, I'm all right. I think I would go. Uh, so I've been to every continent except Antarctica. And, you know, it's really a, it's expensive and, you know, not easy mm-hmm. to get there. So maybe there. Antarctica. Penguins. Uh, hang out with the penguins. Are there any positions or opinions, could be way back or could be recent, where you changed your mind and you were, you know, you used to be like, mm, I, I, I used to believe this, but I don't believe that anymore. I, I think differently. I changed my mind on this. Anything come to mind there for you? I mean, I would say that gray is much more the color. I mean, I, I think you can see it in my uh, like endurance that it's, I'm either all in or all out. And, um, so that's a very black and white thinking and that has a time and place, but I think seeing the gray and everything, I mean, there's, there's a lot, there's always another side, but there's always more to everything. So yeah, I know that's very vague, but just. No, that's not vague. That's actually for, for anybody else, it would be vague. For you, it is not vague. It is the ambiguity that is fascinating to me because I would not ever think that you would answer that way. So I love that because you're stepping into not this or that. You're stepping into this, that, or mm, could be this or could be that. I like that. Who has had the greatest impact on your life? I mean, of course, your parents. It has to be your parents. Not for everybody. Not for everybody. For you, it is. Yeah, I mean, I positive and negative, like good and Mm -hmm. bad. I think we can all relate to that. So, yeah, I can't imagine what would have more of an impact on shaping who and how I... I get it. What was your greatest setback and what did you learn from it? I mean, before the row, I got in a accident on my boat and I thought that it was possible that I would lose the boat because of mm. the damage. And it was on Lake Erie. And so it's very shallow. It gets very rough out there. And, um, you know, people were like, if you can't row Lake Erie, why do you think you could row the Atlantic? And Failing is one thing. Failing publicly is another when people are like, oh, I want to get this on film. Like, okay, take your film. This is my boat. And so it was, and even like the New York Times wrote a thing about like how it's unlikely that I would make it. And so I just felt like the pressure of the world and a failure before it started. And so I was really the weight of that. And then yeah. I mean, there was a lot going on just knowing that I was about to do something that I could potentially die doing. And so that psychologically, it, that's a lot to carry. So, so that was probably my biggest low. And the question was, what, what did I learn from it? Yeah. I mean, you could feel like a failure and you can like, just because you feel like a failure doesn't mean you are. And that, I don't know that feelings are important but they aren't the most important and that you can feel like you can't do something, but that doesn't mean you're right. You can feel inadequate. You can feel all those things. And yet you, it's still 
Yeah, there you there you go, embracing that gray area that you just talked about, right? It's not like it's not feelings are good or they're bad. You can be tap dancing around, you know, both both ends of it. What does it feel like for you to say, like, you know, the New York Times wrote this about me and you know, um, I was on Joe Rogan's podcast, biggest podcast in the world, right? That's that had to be an unbelievable experience. So what does it feel like to have the level of notoriety that you have now? Um, I think it just feels like a responsibility to be a voice for those that don't have it and to really make sure that that's out there and that it's being used for something that could help the world. Like in and of itself, it doesn't really matter, but it matters on how it's used. So yeah, I think I just feel like a little bit of a responsibility to make sure that it's being directed towards something that matters. That's great. Uh, Two more questions. What is your guilty pleasure? Whipped cream. Like, like I don't even need ice cream. Just, yeah. Cool whip or, or ready whip? No, no, out of the can. Oh, you want the nitrous in your, in your mouth. Okay. Got (laughs) it. You're taking me back to being six years old. Um, You know, they don't have that here in Italy. It doesn't exist. Can't find it. I don't know. Just that and peanut butter. Can't get either of those or Cheetos. It's really weird. Last question. What one question would you like to ask me? What is a goal that you're working on right now? I am doing, uh, I do events around the world and uh, I take entrepreneurs who work too much and I have them realize that there's a lot of things out there in the world. For example, um, we'll cover all kinds of different areas. Uh, I did one in America where I hired Tom Brady's trainer to train us um, at TB12, how he trains Tom. We did a day with him. Uh, A couple months ago, I did an event in Milan uh, where I brought in Ferraris. Uh, They they woke up in the morning and they went into Ferraris and we went through Emilia Romana uh, and we went to Lake Como. We learned how to fly a seaplane and we landed on Lake Como in a seaplane. So just, just for backstory, that's kind of what I do. But I'm doing the biggest version of that that I've ever done before. It's my first platinum, I'm calling it, events. And these are people that are super high end. Um, I'm talking with billionaires and I'm talking with celebrities and those kinds of things to come on these events. And it's not around flash, but it's around having meaningful conversations that will allow them to shift the world in different ways. And some of these conversations will be in palaces here in Italy. Some of them will be uh, in Amalfi on the the Italian uh, Riviera. And undertaking that level of group to put them into an environment that is inspirational, give them downtime, connect time, and have them at the end of it come together and really feel like that they're different as a result of it is uh, exciting, terrifying, and deeply fulfilling. So it's it's my uh, it's my endurance uh, uh, event. Wow, that sounds amazing. It's cool. You can see if you go to workhardplayerpodcast.com, you can see all the events I've done. Well, this was every bit that I thought it was going to be. I'm I'm really fascinated by how you tick and how you approach life. I love, um, we talked a lot about the athletic part, but really what I'm getting from this is what's underneath this 
is somebody, somebody who really wants to make a difference in the world. And that's obvious. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 